0: Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey, everyone. John Chapman here. Excited to have you with us for another podcast. Today, we interviewed Christopher Van Slyke, CEO and founder of WorthPoint Wealth Management. During the podcast, Christopher shares a little bit of his upbringing, how he got started in the industry, and how he eventually transitioned from being financial planner into more of a business owner. And when that light bulb moment happened for him, be sure to check out the end. Christopher talks about the two most destructive things that he sees in other clients and entrepreneurs. So keep out, look out for that. We're excited to have you here with us today. And without further ado, we'll introduce Christopher. Hey, Christopher, thanks so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm really excited to, to be here.
0: So uh, Christopher, as a CEO, founder of WorthPoint, there's so much that I'd like to hear from you about your background, your career path as an advisor, and then what it's like to be a business owner. But I'd like to start just from the, well, why don't you give us an idea of what you're up to today, and then we'll start to hear about your background.
1: Oh, wow. I, I lead at this point what I would call the dream life. I live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming with my four small children and uh, work remotely living up here in the mountains and uh, i have arranged my life with a flexible work schedule and i've developed a great income and a great team that i work with that enables me to be very active with skiing and golf and hiking and camping and spending time with my family so i i hate to admit it but i'm I'm kind of living the dream life.
0: You're totally living the dream. That makes I think it makes me feel jealous, and probably some of the listeners too. And I imagine that probably didn't happen overnight. So you know, that's
1: a funny that's a funny thing because uh, when people hear about my lifestyle, they they kind of look at me funny, and I usually say. It didn't happen overnight, <laughs> yeah.
0: and I'm sure I'm sure you didn't just find yourself there uh, just happenstance. I wonder if this was a, a dream that you had earlier. But uh, where did you grow up in Wyoming? Tell me a little bit about where you grew up. And what-
1: no, no, I, I grew up in a and warm, humid Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. and I used to come skiing like all Texans every winter. And uh, in the back of my mind, uh, living up in in the Rocky Mountains was paradise. So I think I always had a dream to live in a place like this. And, so yeah, uh, I made it
0: happen. That's neat. And being in the advisory business, I think through like the, thinking about your your career path, tell me about where you went to school and what was it that you were originally thinking that you wanted to
1: end up in for oh, i you know I'm the son of a lawyer, so growing up, I was taught that the way to be successful was a fairly linear process, so you know, make straight A's, go to certain schools. Go to certain professional schools, and your life will be great and will be paved with gold. It turns out that not everybody's cut out for that kind of life. And my father, actually, who's a lawyer, wisely told me, "You don't want to be a lawyer." <laughs> 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 and, and, and he, yeah, he knew me. He knew me well enough to say that. He said, "Don't get and and I think he had some regrets about his own professional choices. He said, "Don't get into a business where you're trading." your time for money because your job will always own your time and i you know i was 22 when he told me that and didn't really make sense because that meant i had to go discover what i was good at and what my path in life was going to be but it turned out that that was good advice i just that's uh,
0: to- trading your time for money i guess explain that a little bit more for people that don't understand what you mean
1: well, if the way you make your income is just trading your own personal time for money, then the only way to make more money is is to work more, generally. And I think you, you never get to a point where your money or your business is working for you. You're always working for the money. And what he said was, you know, I, I work for entrepreneurs. He's a corporate lawyer. And these people have learned to develop businesses, which... Do their work for them, in effect, enterprises, so that those businesses don't own them and their time. I think he just, even though he was a really successful, highly paid lawyer, I, I think he was jealous of many of his clients.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So he, you said earlier that he told you this at the age of 22. And in, in so many other um, podcasts you hear like entrepreneurship being part of the DNA inside you. So I guess first, do, do you believe that entrepreneurship is part of your DNA? Did you see that in yourself? And then second, what you know, once he
1: told you that, what, what sort of career path did you think you were going to go down? In, in retrospect, I do think it is in my DNA. I, I don't think that you necessarily have to be born an entrepreneur. And to be honest my entrepreneurship was was born out of uh, desperation. I, I really was not a particularly good worker bee. I, I have a lot of my own ideas, and I like to try them, and I like to question authority, and I'm not afraid to be different. And those things don't work very well in a corporate environment. So I, I found, after cycling through several jobs in corporations in my 20s, that maybe the best path for me was to start my own business. Yeah. So that's kind of what led me there. It was not some grand plan. It wasn't some brilliant decision. I, I will say that you know, growing up in a professional world where my father occupied, being an entrepreneur was kind of looked down on. His class did not look at entrepreneurs as being as, I don't know, well-respected as the professions. And I think it was so far outside of my dad's uh, experience that it was difficult for him to encourage entrepreneurial type skills. So it wasn't, it wasn't a possibility for me. It wasn't op- that door was not open for me as a young person. Yeah, I didn't see that. I didn't see that possibility until later. Hmm, that's really interesting. Was that part of
0: uh, you said his class? So is that part of his? Um... Like like uh, his 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 status or the, those people around him or is that due to like his generation and, and being part of the you know the great generation?
1: No, no, it was it was his group. It was because he was a lawyer, and um, the, in a strange way, people with advanced degrees think they're better than people like Steve Jobs who went to junior college. And I, actually, I'd rather be Steve Jobs than be a PhD from Harvard um (laughs) yeah because i i think it's a cooler path i think it's a cooler life so there's that there's that tension between the the highly educated achievers and just the regular old achievers (laughs) yeah that's that's
0: that's my perspective if i still thinking about part of your childhood and growing up how did your parents interact with money? Were there, were there chores or a budget around the house that you interacted with? And did you identify uh, as a spender or a saver? What, what was money like growing up?
1: I did learn very good habits from my father. We There were chores, uh, highly regimented chores, and there were financial rewards for many things. There was a lot of opportunities to earn money around the house. And my father had extremely, and has very good money habits. And I would say that, that I have carried forward, with, you know, in, into life. I, I had uh, credit cards. I think, I think I got a credit card in junior high that, that I had to pay off every month because he wanted to teach me about debt and spending and uh, that kind of thing. And I had bank, I'm pretty sure I had bank and savings accounts when I was under 10. So super young. That's something that my father did a great job of teaching.
0: That's interesting. So when was it that you felt like personal finance or becoming a financial advisor was was really the career path for you?
1: Well, I was working in, I had a degree in finance, so it was easy to get a job in that field. And I was working on the institutional side of the business for a big money manager uh, as a trader. And I really have always enjoyed economics and finance, uh, but something was missing in in that role. And turns out that the missing piece for me was people. I really enjoy yeah. getting face to face with people. I love having conversations and I enjoy the emotional rewards that I get from earning people's trust and helping them solve the problem. Yeah. So, so how old were you when you first
0: became a financial advisor? What year was that?
1: Uh, t- an advisor, probably about 26. Twenty six years old. At at about twenty-three I was working in finance, but at twenty-six I this will tell you the story. I actually went to business school, got an MBA because everybody in the institutional side of the business was like, you know, if you're gonna work in a corporation, you need this advanced degree. So I not knowing what to do, except I didn't want to stop progressing, I went to, to grad school. And, you know, most people who go to a good graduate business school go work in uh, consulting or, or finance in Wall Street. And uh, I actually went and worked for a retail financial advisor uh, because I really liked the interaction with the, with the clients. And uh, it did not pay well. <laughs> 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 but, but I learned a lot. And a, a lot of these independent financial advisors were pretty entrepreneurial. So I, yeah. I, really, I really thrived in that environment. Hmm, that's really cool. So, I guess in the years since you first
0: started in the industry, the the shape of of financial advising or financial planning has changed so much. So, I guess give us some context for what was a, a normal financial planning or financial advisor relationship like when you first. Got there. Uh,
1: well, th- there really was no financial planning. The Certified Financial Planner designation was was in its infancy, and most people in who who got help at the retail level with their money were getting it from a broker. So you, you had to get, get your help from you know, one of the Wall Street firms. So, And there are a lot of problems with that business model. I had come from the institutional side of the business where uh, the firms were regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission and they were fiduciaries, which meant that they had to put their clients' interest before their own on the institutional side. On the retail side, they weren't fiduciaries, and I was very uncomfortable in that environment. So that's one thing I discovered right away when I started working with clients as an independent advisor. That's interesting. So we we hear the term brokers still floating
0: around all the time, even though um, that still invokes memories of like uh, you know Wall Street from the '80s and things like that. So can you just what's the definition of a broker, and how would that be different from a financial planner?
1: A broker is facilitating a transaction. So it's kind of like buying a used car. When you go to the car lot and you ask the car salesman, you say, I need a car. They don't have a duty to sell you the car that's at the best price and might be right for you, right? But you understand that. They're there to sell you a car. And that's what a broker is. They're there to sell you a financial product, right? And, And that's very different than when you go to a physician or a lawyer where they are expected to do what's right for you legally. Yeah. So that's really the two sides of our industry, the advisor side, which is fiduciarily oriented, and the broker side where it's, you know, "I'm, I'm here to sell you something.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. Good distinction. And when you were were getting started and somewhat in like the first phase of your business career, what were the type of clients that you uh, were associating with? And what were some of the things you were helping them on?
1: My early clients were uh, younger baby boomers, successful younger baby boomers. So I, I had to, you know, I didn't have a big name on the door. I was working for myself and I had to find a niche of people that would start working with a newer advisor who didn't have a lot of clients and didn't have a big name behind them. So I targeted what, what I would now call high potential baby boomers. So these were boomers in, in their 30s who had complicated, their families were starting to grow, their jobs were very demanding, and they were beginning to hit that part of the curve, the ascendancy of their careers, where they were making partner, where they were making a lot of money and life was getting complicated, but they didn't have enough money to command the attention of a more experienced advisor or, or one with a big name on the door. Yeah. So that. That, was, okay. that was my initial target.
0: I like that. And, it, and did that shift over time? You said that was your year initial. So what was, how did that uh,
1: transition as those No, started? No, I, I stayed with that group as they became wealthier and wealthier and began to refer their friends, our our business really exploded because and basically because i had gotten in on the ground floor i mean my my pitch was look i've got a lot of education and training i'm really good at this i don't have a lot of experience you are clearly on the path to success but you don't have a lot of money yet so let's work together and (laughs) and and become successful together that that literally was my pitch and it turned out to be a, a great formula
0: so, I mean, no, no successful um, you know, entrepreneur or even financial advisor uh, makes it without any of the scars. So what were some of the challenging things or, or the hurdles or obstacles that you had to overcome, even in your, your own
1: personal business or just in dealing with clients? <laughs> well, where do I begin? <laughs> well, when I started out on my own, I decided to hang out my shingle as one of these fiduciary advisors and not someone working for a big organization. And there really was no blueprint. There was no roadmap. There was no software. There was nothing, there wasn't the infrastructure to help you do it. So I literally had to figure everything out as I was bringing in new clients and helping the clients we had. I had to kind of be the chief cook and bottle washer, but but I also had to literally invent most of our business process at the mm-hmm. time so this this was at the beginning of the creation of what we call the ria business but you know just just the basic blocking and tackling of running that business was uh, it was a huge task
0: yeah definitely and so you live through two uh <laughs> major recessions market meltdowns the tech bubble and the 08. what what was life like during those times and what were some of the conversations that
1: you were having with your clients (laughs) well the tech bubble the 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 good news was i didn't have a lot of clients a lot of assets so (laughs) when when there was all that volatility i didn't have too many people that i had to uh, pay attention to and i was able to get most people through that you know, the the difficulty of my story in the late 90s is I was preaching this this story of diversification and long-term focus yeah. and financial planning at a time when yeah. people just wanted to buy Amazon and retire next week. So it was very difficult to raise uh, client money in that period. Now, later, a couple of years later, uh, a lot of those people came back to me and said, hey, you know that stuff you were saying about being diversified and sensible and long-term and doing financial planning? Well, we think now that we've seen what happened, we think that's a good idea. <laughs> so, so right around two thousand two, two thousand three, our business really took off because, in retrospect, I had been proven right about what I was talking about in the nineties. Yeah! Wow!
0: What a, what a learning experience. If you if yeah. you put on so you've been an advisor for many years, but eventually you switched hats and then started taking on the role
1: more of a business owner. So walk us through that process. How did that take shape in your life? As it's you know one of those moments that we all have where the light goes on. I'm literally sitting in a conference room. I can remember it like it was yesterday in the Hyatt Hotel in San Diego in 2003 or 2004. And the speaker was Michael Gerber who wrote a book called The E-Myth. And yeah. The E-Myth was all about working on your business, not in your business. And he stood up there and stomped his feet and screamed at us and said, <laughs> you guys are not business owners. You've all created high-paying jobs for yourself. You have not created businesses." And he was right. What was that like to
0: hear that, though? I mean, after putting in, you know, blood, sweat and tears for so many years and then to have uh, the one <laughs> Michael Gerber be, be stomping his feet, what was that feel like?
1: Well, you know, I was young and I think I was one of the younger advisors in the room hmm. and I think it was easier for me to switch gears than a lot of my coworkers. workers I, I still remember a lot of the older Advisors objecting and and arguing with Michael, and if you look at the landscape for the business, I don't think that many of them did decide to remake their business into an enterprise and away from what what Gerber calls a high paying job.
0: Yeah, gotcha. So. So you made that transition and then it's taken, I imagine, you know, some time to define it up. So just walk walk (laughs) us through how how your business has taken shape since you made that decision to work on the
1: business rather than in the business. Well, my my journey is I was working for these big companies and I hated it because they were really bureaucratic. I I worked for huge Fortune 500 companies and I loved it when I started out on my own as an advisor uh, because... I didn't have to answer anybody, but but I was also kind of lonely. It turns out I I like working with other people. I like collaborating. I like building something together. So from that standpoint, it, it was a pretty easy transition. But what Gerber is saying is your business is has to be repeatable. It has to be process oriented. And what I was doing was it was a different financial planning technique for this client than this client, and this person would have a slightly different investment strategy than this client. And so I built a very idiosyncratic business that was not repeatable and required me to be there to do almost everything because most of the idiosyncrasy was in my head. Yeah. So it, it was about defining clearly what a financial plan was, what an investment strategy was for the firm, and then really thinking about what is it that I'm actually best to do? right cuz i'm not good at 98% of what goes on in our in our company so <laughs> okay. what uh, what are those 2% things that yeah, i what can is that do that 2% yeah what is that and how do i move this 98% away from me and that's called that's leverage and so i really had to think about what what would we look like in 5 years and 10 years and what things can i give away and what kind of people mm. do i need to work with in order to to leverage my little two percent so that i can do my thing and we can all kind of specialize in what we do well it really i know it sounds not that revolutionary but (laughs) it really was and i had an i had a master's in business administration from a highly reputable uh business school but i never the light never really went on until this moment
0: yeah so then, so I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that. And as you started to take yourself out of the bigger equation and, and you shrank down into really pinpointing on the things that you started to do well, who else was filling the gap? So, you know, how, how many employees did you start to, to bring onto the company and what type of job functions were they fulfilling?
1: Oh, well, the first, you know, what I'm clearly not good at is administration. I'm not a detail person. So the first Literally, the first person I hired was much better with details than I am. He is still with the firm. He was hired in 2003, I think. So it, it's really obvious when you're just one person doing everything. It's pretty easy to look at all the things you're doing badly and say, yeah. Wow, I probably if I just hired someone with the opposite personality type, this will get a lot better. So the, first, the first leap in productivity is gargantuan. Because you're literally taking the third of the work you do badly, and you're handing it to someone that does it well. Mm. And as you go along, as you get bigger and bigger, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. If you're left with two thirds, that two thirds, so you gave away a third to the first person. What of the remaining two thirds do you do? You know, maybe serviceably, but not great. So you just you just peel off. You know, it's things. I used to do my own books. I did my own payroll. You know, I did my own trading. I I did my own trading. Those are specialized personalities. I I will say, you didn't ask me this question, but one of the traps that entrepreneurs fall into and advisors fall into is they go around looking for someone like themselves. Okay. So a lot of founders like me say, I'm just looking for uh, some advisors and I want them to go around and beat the bushes for clients and, I want them to make no money while they're building their business. basically, you're saying I'm looking for someone like me, but the business is already off the ground. You don't actually need that same personality. You yeah. need people that can deliver, that can think, that are more organized than you are. your primary benefit is you're crazy enough to start it. You don't need more crazy <laughs> right. people. And, you know, I'm yeah. saying crazy in quotes. You yeah, sure. But that, that was really big for me is to stop looking for people like myself and say, well, wait a minute, why would you need more of that? You need more of all the things you don't have.
0: Yeah. Well, so that's a really good point. And so for thinking of the other entrepreneurs out there that are listening, you brought up a a really good nugget of some things to watch out for, which is you know in regards to the hiring process. What else comes to your
1: mind as some wisdom for a young entrepreneur who is looking to uh, leverage his time? Well, I think you need to do a skills analysis on yourself and say, look, if where are the areas what does that first hire look like you know is that an organized and it frequently it is an organized administrative person who can think about the business in terms of how it's set up and how efficiently it runs while you're thinking about innovation and new clients yeah so it really depends on what stage you're in in terms of how we have found the people once we determine the skill sets that we were weak on most of our people have come through referral from our people, to be honest. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. And I appreciate you sharing some of that perspective with uh, some of the time that we have left. I'm interested to hear too. putting back on the hat of let's say the uh, financial planner. What's some of the advice out there that you feel like is just, you know, stuff that people should be steering clear of or have um, a red flag go off. You know, we're, we're bombarded by it, it. Supposed "quote unquote" investment advice online every single day. So, what are some of the cautionary things that you think stand out that uh, people should be taking note of?
1: Two things. Remind me what they both are. But one one is the investment unicorn, and the other is the the idea of beginning with the end in mind. So, the two things I see that are the most destructive is people cycling through advisors, firms, etc., looking for investments that have high returns and low risks and just (laughs) just,
0: right isn't that that, that what everyone wants
1: we all want that absolutely and little girls want unicorns i know because i have i have two uh they're always talking about unicorns (laughs) but but we know they don't exist (laughs) and uh high return low risk investments don't exist okay um disciplined long-term investing works and it exists and First of all, you need, to, you need to get your mind straight with that. And yeah. secondarily, I think the biggest tragedy I see, and I'll say that the most profound comment in my entire career was someone looking across the table from me and lowering their glasses and saying, gosh, I wish I have met you sooner. And mm. I think what, what they're saying is they see the power of looking 20 years down the road mm. and, think, and thinking about what we need to do today to get us to a point out in the future where they're secure and happy and you you can't do it in year 18 because all those earnings have already passed you by and all those decisions have been made the planning process itself is miraculous in its ability to get people to dream big and put in place a plan to achieve those dreams i just i can't tell you how powerful it is Mm. I always think it's Stephen Covey. Begin with the end in mind. Yeah, exactly. So the investment unicorn and planning itself. <laughs> that's are, so good. And, they're, magic, they're magical.
0: Totally. Well, I guess in that, in that kind of brings us full circle. And that's why you're living in, uh, you know, in, a, in a mountain town, raising your family, and you've got a successful business run. So clearly it's something that you've adopted in your own life.
1: Well, yeah, I was thinking about this the other day, actually one of the greatest gifts of my career is i got to sit around in my 20s and talk to people about their lives and i got to talk to people at the beginning of the life cycle and at the end of the life cycle and i got to see people who had made really good decisions and people who had made really bad decisions and i created my own dream in this process because it forced me at a pretty young age to think about what would my perfect life look like i'm not saying my life's perfect but it allowed me to create a dream and to begin to act on the dream because I was talking to all these different people about their dreams and it kind of awesome. made, it ver- it made it very top of mind. That's probably the greatest gift that mm. this business has given me is that I got to learn about people's mistakes and successes and dreaming big through these conversations I had trying to help them.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Wow, what a, what a special gift and, and the, what a cool chance for a young person to be around uh, some successful people and to be able to learn those lessons.
1: Absolutely.
0: So let's transition. And as we're wrapping up here, like give give me a sense as you look towards the future, both with your family, with four young kids, as you mentioned, uh, what are some of the things you're looking forward to? Like what's the, what's your future like for your family and
1: even for your business? My business is now focused on the transition from me to the future owners. So our company's Uh, Is very successful. It provides a nice income. It's a great place to work. It is not ready to live without me. So, and I think every day about how I will transition this company to the hands of younger people and I will transition the equity into my own personal situation out of the corporation. Mm -hmm. So, I I am in the stage of building the infrastructure and success necessary to kind of let the baby bird fly out of the nest. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And for my family, I have four young kids. So my legacy uh, for the next two decades is going to be to to raise awesome kids and be a great husband. Hmm. I love it. That's super
0: good. Well, Christopher, this has been really fun to hear about your your upbringing, your career path, and and a little bit of what the future looks like. Is there anything else that uh, we haven't covered that you feel like you want to share about your journey?
1: No, I just... I always think about uh, the, the saying, you know, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is your life. So if you, ha- if you have dreams, if you have things you want to do, start right now. Uh, w- doing the things required to get you to where you want to go. And if you need help, find the people that you need to help you on your journey uh, and find them today because that yeah. really helps propel success. We don't get, where we want to go by ourselves a lot of people help us along the way hmm, super encouraging i love that it's a great
0: pearl of wisdom christopher thanks again hope to have you back on the show thank you thanks for tuning in to the john chapman show be sure to subscribe on itunes stitcher or spotify we encourage your questions comments and feedback for additional information check out the john chapman show.com or look for john on linkedin and twitter see you next week